favorite grade six to eights. There they go. There they go. They have a great time with uh, Pastor Chris and his team. Um, I think I saw JJ in the back preparing for today's lesson. And I think they're going to have an awesome morning. I'm a little bit sad about today because it's our last, it's the last of a, a series that we've been going through the, through the summer. We've been in the book of Galatians, the letter to the, to the province of Galatia, the churches that were there. And we've entitled our series, Jesus Plus Nothing. And if you haven't caught on, Jesus plus nothing equals everything. <laughs> it equals everything. Uh, Jesus plus nothing. That equation equals everything. But uh, one, one more, one last chance in this series, and by, we have not plumbed the depths of the book of Galatians. Uh, in fact, I, I just think, oh, if only we could do a few more weeks here, but this will have to be the last one. So I, I, I want you to imagine that you've been given a job, and the job is on behalf of the United States government after the Vietnam War. And your job is to go to uh, Vietnam, uh, where all the prisoner of war camps have been erected, and the government has, has finally sort of settled things so that uh, prisoners who are held in these camps uh, can be set free. And it's your job to actually go to these camps and proclaim freedom in the camps. So you'd think, wow, this is an exciting job. I can hardly wait. I am the bearer of such good news. I can hardly wait to deliver it. And so you come to these camps where people have been lived in squalor and torture and bis been mistreated, and you come and you say, you're free. You're free. Your slavery, your, your captivity is over. The war is over. Things are, we'll go back to the way that they were. Uh, you're, you're free to go to be who you were made to be. You can go back to being a farmer or a school teacher or, or a, a carpenter or, or a, a trucker or whatever it is that you were. And you can go back and be a husband and a father. And you can go back and, and uh, be a leader in your community. And you can live the life you were always meant to live. What incredible good news. Now let's imagine, I'm going to paint a, 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 a non-historical scenario. Let's imagine that you lead a group of prisoners of war. They're skinny, they're emaciated, they're, they're, they're weak, they're sick. But you're leading them to a bright future and, and you take them to the airport. You get to the airport, and there's uh, places set up where they can sleep the night. And while you sleep in the night, and you wake up in the morning, they're all gone. And you rush around, and you say, what happened to them? What happened? The plane hasn't come yet. Well, what happened to all these prisoners of war? And now two things happen. One, you discover through, you know, people give you information that half of them have gone back to the prisoner of war camp. And the other half have gone to, you know, some city in Vietnam, Hanoi or something like that, you know, someplace in, in Vietnam. And, and so these ones are back here, and they're just living as captives again. Even though there's no guards to keep them in, they're just still willingly living in what they came to know. And then these other ones have gone over here, and they're just wasting their lives. They're just getting drunk every day, and they're just, you know, they're waking up in the morning, face down in ditches everywhere, and they're just totally destroying their lives. How maddening would that be? That you came to declare freedom, and yet they never found the freedom. Now this is, I'm saying this story to help you understand a little bit of how mad the Apostle Paul was. When he heard of what had happened, he had declared the freedom of Christ all over the province of Galatia. 
City after city after city, people had heard about the, the, the forgiveness of God offered through Jesus Christ. That what Jesus had done for people on the cross meant that you could approach God in a whole new way that wasn't like the slavery of worshiping the old pagan gods. But it was this brand new way of approaching God and this wonderful freedom that we have in Christ. And now he's heard the news that some Jewish, um, uh, other Jewish people from, uh, from Israel have gone to Galatia, which isn't a Jewish area, it's Greek people. And he's gone to this area and they've started to tell them, you know what? Paul told you you should trust in Jesus and that's, that's all well and good, but you have to add to that something else. And that is obeying every single Jewish law. Ceremonial law, civil law, moral law, all the things you find in the Old Testament law, you have to obey all those things. And Paul said, they are, and so Paul is, is it, you'll see this in the passage we're about to read, but Paul is describing, he says, it's like some people have gone back into slavery again because now they're totally uncertain of the love of God in their lives. And he says, and there's other people have, who, are, who are wasting even if they understand the freedom in their, they, have, they have in Christ, they, they, they swing over to the other ditch, right? They go from, from being sort of bound up under a slavery of, of obeying in order to please God to going over here to this other ditch where now they're just living for themselves. They say, well, I'm free, so I'll just live however I want. So now let's read the passage and see if you can spot those two extremes in it. So Galatians 5, chapter 1 said, It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then, and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. This, is, this first verse is probably the pinnacle of the whole book. This is probably the apex. This is like, we've worked towards this crescendo. Now there's still verses after this, but this is sort of the, you know, if you want to, this could be the theme verse of the whole book. It's for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and do not be, let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery, right? We'll keep reading. Mark my words, I, Paul, tell you that if you let yourselves be circumcised, as they were being encouraged to do, Christ will be of no value to you at all. Again, I declare to you that every man who lets himself be circumcised, that he's obligated to obey the whole law. You who are trying to be justified by the law have been alienated from Christ. You have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, we eagerly await by faith the righteousness for which we hope. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. You were running a good race. Who cut in on you to keep you from obeying the truth? This kind of persuasion, that kind of persuasion does not come from the one who calls you. A little yeast works through the whole batch of dough. I am confident in the Lord that you will take no other view. The one who is throwing you into confusion, whoever that may be, will have to pay the penalty. Brothers and sisters, if I'm still preaching circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been abolished. As for those agitators, this is one of the strangest verses in Scripture, I wish they would go the whole way and emasculate themselves. Talk about being upset. You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free. 
But do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. For the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. If you bite and devour each other, watch out or you'll be destroyed by each other. So I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They're in conflict with one another so that you, are not, you do not do what you want. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. So back to first verse. It's for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and do not let yourself be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. You once were a slave under pagan worship to idols that were fickle masters that you could never be sure if you'd done enough to please. And if you listen to these guys who come to from these guys who are, there's a term for them, legalists, these guys who are trying to get you to obey the whole law in order to be right with God. That that's your, that's your whole hope, is that I can obey the whole law to be right with God. If you listen to them and do what they tell you, if you, if you as Greek people, if you, you, would, you adopt Jewish customs like circumcision and trying to obey every ceremonial and civil and, and moral, all the, all the laws, tick, 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 of the Old Testament, says you are gonna be burdened. You're gonna be burdened again and you're not going to be more you're not going to be free it's going to be just like it was before you heard the message about Jesus before you heard the good news that he'd set you free you're going to be a slave again so don't be burdened again stand firm and so he's saying stand firm against legalism stand firm against legalists stand firm in your own mind because mostly the battle is going to happen there because every one of us is drawn into this Every one of us is drawn into this. It's a strange, it's a good news message about Jesus, but it's strange to us because in every area of our lives, we earned what we got. But we come to this one area of our life where we can't earn what we need. See, what do we need? We need to be right with God. We need to be right with God. But we can't earn it. Oh, there's a multitude of systems in the world will tell you how to be right with God. Do step one, step two, step three. The message of the gospel is different than that. It's saying that instead of trusting in your efforts or your working a system in order to be right with God, trust in what Jesus has done. Trust in what he has done to make you right with God. It's our belief in him. It's our trust in him. It's our sudden understanding that what he has done was enough. And what we could do is, will never be enough. And so we abandon trusting our own works and we begin to trust in what he has done. So stand firm. Stand firm in your own mind because you'll be tempted. Because you want and I want to follow the exact same pattern that we've learned our whole lives, and that's earning it. I want to. Why, why do I want that so bad? Because then I can tell a really great story at the end of how I did it. Because in my heart of hearts, I want to be the hero of the story, and I actually don't want anyone else to be. But thanks be to God, he is changing my story. He's changing my story so that Jesus is the central figure of it and not me. 
where I used to sit on the throne in my life, well, or think I was sitting on the throne. I really was a slave to whatever thing I thought was ultimate. Power, fame, money, popularity, looking for love in all the wrong places. Now he comes to move me off of the throne. The best thing I can have for my life is that Jesus would come and take the throne in my life and I would, I would love him and serve him. He's the only master that doesn't enslave. To accept him as Lord and to, and to live for him. Let me, jump, let me d- jump down to verse 4. He says, You who are trying to be justified have been alienated from Christ and you have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, verse 5, we eagerly await by faith the righteousness for which we hope. Now, I want to show you the contrast, and I showed it to you last week, but it, I, it, I really want to reinforce this. Last week, I talked about the difference between trying and trusting. If you're trying to be justified by the law, and there's all sorts of things that come with that, trying to be justified by the law, but it's a form of trusting in yourself and in your own works. And then there's the other side, and that's found in verse 5. It says, For through the Spirit we eagerly await by faith the righteousness for which we hope. We eagerly await the righteousness for which we hope. Now, let me define two words really quickly. Like, it's nice when you don't have to use theological words in church, but sometimes you need to know a few of them. So let me tell you a few of them. That'll be really helpful. And, and for many, you might know these. The word justified, right? You're trying to be justified. What does it mean to be justified? It means to be seen in a different light. So like, let's say my, one of my teenage sons is late for curfew. Comes home late. And I said, you needed to be home by, I don't know what the number is, 10 o'clock. Remember? At 10 o'clock. We were going to have a family meeting or we were going to have a family board game or whatever we were going to do. But you needed to be home at 10 o'clock and you weren't home last night at 10 o'clock. Now, guilty as charged. Totally guilty. But what if he comes up with a great story? What if he comes up with a great story? No, no, no. Let's not say that. What if he has a great story that's true? What if he says... Dad, I, I would have been home by 10 o'clock, but the van broke down, which would not be unlikely. Have you seen my van? I'm hanging on to wind stars as long as they can go. And the, the van broke down, and I had to run all the way from South Hill to home. And the van's on the side of the road, and, and, and Dad, can't you see? I'm perspiring. I'm sweating all over the place. Dad, I tried my absolute best to get here by 10 o'clock. But seriously, you got to do some maintenance on your van, Dad. <laughs> now, he's still late, but in my mind, he's justified. What does justified mean? It means you, you see someone in a totally different light. I now see his actions in a totally different light. I go, oh, okay, all is forgiven. No worries. Everything's right between us because now I understand and I see you in a whole different light. When, it's, when we say that we want, we want to be justified, we want, we want to be seen in the right light with God. And justified is a really fun word because you can actually sort of use it to help it define it. Just if I'd, right? Justified. It's, it's, it's just 
If I, because of what Jesus has done for us, let's make sure we got the context. Because of what Jesus has done, died on the cross, taken our sin and shame, paid our penalty, lived the life, perfect life, that we could never have lived, died the death we deserve to die, rose from the grave in the power of God, all those things. Because of that, because of that, we can be justified. And it's just as if I'd never sinned. See, that's fun with the word, justified. Justified, never sinned. That's, my pastor taught me that when I was little. I learned that when I was a kid. Just, it's just as if I'd never sinned. Have I never sinned? Oh, no. Oh, no. Oh, no, 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 no. I have sinned. Oh, I have I ever sinned. But God sees me in a whole light just as if I'd never sinned. Actually, it's even better than that. God sees me just as if I'd always obeyed. Because the righteousness that I have is not my righteousness. It's not just that he wipes the slate clean of all my sin. He sees me glowing in the righteousness of his son Jesus, who was obedient to death, who was obedient the whole way, who lived the perfect life, never sinned and always obeyed. And that's the righteousness I carry. Look, oh man, i got to find some verses so you, because you say, but I don't believe that. How can that be true? Well, let's just show you from scriptures. I'm going to have to jump probably to the end there. Uh, just tell the tech guys I'm going to switch things up. But I have to show you the 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, God made him, that's Jesus, who had no sin, to be sin for us. 2 Corinthians 5.21. So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So Jesus wasn't sinful, but he became sin for us. So that we who weren't righteous could become righteous. What an incredible exchange. Philippians 3.9 also says it. It says, and, and, and we, uh, just it's halfway through the sentence, to be found in him. This is, where, this is what our position is. This is what becomes of us. And be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, But that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. So when God sees us, he sees us as being as righteous as Jesus. It's sort of hard to imagine, isn't it? But boy, if that sinks in, it'll change you. If that sinks in, we were singing it this morning. My sins are nailed to the cross. And we're singing, you know, all your sins, past, present, and future. Past, present, and future. So this week, when I get selfish, he already went to the cross for that. So that's the first word, justified, just as if I didn't sin and just as if I always obeyed and just as if I lived the life of Jesus. God sees me in a whole new light. And here's the other word. And, and this is, I find this sort of, I bet Bible translators are frustrated by this word. Let me read verse 5. It says, For through the Spirit we eagerly await by faith the righteousness for which we hope. And I want to just zero on that word hope. 
the way we use hope and the way the Bible uses hope, like in this context, are completely different. In fact, they're basically opposites. If I say to you, yeah, what do you think about the riders next week? Man, well, I hope, or they have a bye week. I'm not sure. Anyhow, um, well, I, I hope they win. I, early in the season, you would have said it like this. Well, I hope they win. But now we're starting to get our mojo, right? So it's like, yeah, I hope they win, right? But both of those have the same root at them, uncertainty. Because you don't know if the riders are going to win from week to week. You might hope. We all hope if you're a good Saskatchewanian, you know, unless you're, you've come from somewhere else and you're, you're undermining. Um, anyhow, <laughs> it's okay. We love you too. But you're not certain. And we say that about everything. Well, I hope this will happen. I hope that'll happen. I hope, I hope, I hope, I hope, I hope. And what is it? It's all uncertainty. Every single bit of it. But the Bible is absolutely opposite in this way. When it talks about eagerly, let me read it again. For through the Spirit, this is the work of God, we eagerly await by faith the righteousness for which we hope. It's not saying, oh, maybe I'll get this thing. No, 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 no. Let me give you scripture that just helps you understand how the, the New Testament writers, how they use the word hope. Hebrews 10, 23. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess. For he who promises is faithful. Does it sound uncertain to you? No, it's something you can hold unswervingly to. Why? Because the one who promises it is faithful. Well, that sounds actually more like certainty than uncertainty. Listen to Hebrews 11.1. 1. Now faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. When you say assurance, you're thinking, wow, that sounds like it's a sure thing, assurance. Listen to this one, uh, uh, 1 Peter 1.3. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he's given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, never spoil, and never fade. I'm just wanting, emphasizing the never. Because it's certain. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you. And then probably my favorite one, I didn't do it first, sorry, just to throw off the tech guys, but Hebrews 6, 19. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul. Firm and secure. Oh, last week, last week I talk, taught about anchors without mentioning it. Do you remember? We had a tug of war on stage. We had Dave and Monty, two big strong guys. And then we totally messed it up. We never got to find out if who was better, Dave or Monty, because we introduced Kyle. I'm doing my best impression of Kyle. There's, there's Kyle, blue shirt. You can tell. Now, does he look like he might be a good anchor for a tug-of-war team? Right? He was an amazing anchor. In fact, whenever we switched from teams, first we put him on Dave's team. And you know what? Dave won easily. And Monty did his absolute best, but it wasn't fair, was it? And then we switched him onto Monty's team. And now Monty won easily. Why? Because they had an anchor, firm and secure. 
We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. We're standing on one end of the tug-of-war rope, and we're saying, I am going to win. And it's not because I'm trusting in my own strength to do it. It's because I have the anchor. And when I've got the anchor, I'm going to win. It's firm. It's secure. So it's, it must be maddening for Bible translators when they come to the word hope. They must be going, we've got to use a different word, but it's so hard. Because when you and I say hope in their regular life, we just are like, oh, maybe. But when you read it in the Bible, it's like solid, dependable. You know you can depend on it. So he says, we eagerly await. That's another sign that this is a sure thing. We eagerly await by faith the righteousness for which we hope. So right now, positionally, I stand because of my trusting in Jesus. I stand as, a, as righteous before God. But that righteousness in its full experience is going to be so much more. It's going to be so much more. I think it was C.S. Lewis who said that if you met the ordinary uh, follower of Jesus right now and sort of saw them, you know, with all their wrinkles and whatever and imperfections, warts and all, he says, but if you saw them for what they will be in eternity, they will be so glorious. If you saw them in eternity now, you would be tempted to worship them. No mind has conceived, conceived what God has in store for those who follow him. So through the Spirit, we eagerly await by faith the righteousness which we have now, but will be fully realized then. The full glory of what God wants to do with your life the full experience of what you will be in Christ. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. That's the next verse. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. Now, I got some really great feedback last week, some really helpful feedback. And I realized that, there, again, it says stand firm because it's actually you need to stand firm. You need to stand for it. I got some great feedback from different people that really helped me hear how you were hearing me, which is really great. So some questions that came up, okay? Is this too passive? Like it seems like Paul is saying it really matters why you obey. But so I got feedback like, is this too passive? It's just like, okay, so Jesus made us righteous in Christ. Well, then why would I ever do anything for him now? I'm already, I'm already in, Right? You know, it's sort of like if, if you've already, uh, you know, if your, your teacher a week before the end of classes gives you an A-plus as your final mark for the year. Why try the last week? I drove uh, a school bus uh, for one year of my life. When I was like 21, I, drove, I was, looked younger than the kids. And uh, the school bus driver who had the route before me convinced me this would be a really great way to make some supplemental income. You know, drive a school bus on the side. And I said, sure, I'll, I'll try anything. I'll, try, I'll drive a school bus. What he didn't tell me was how the last week of his year went. The last week of his year, it was the second last day. And the kids were saying, 
you know, his name was Dave. Dave, 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 can you, you know, you do a treat at the end of the year. You always go by the corner store and you buy us all treats. That was the habit of what he did. And he goes, and he goes yeah, yeah, yeah. None of us are going to be on tomorrow because our exams are done. We don't have a school tomorrow, so we're going to miss our treat. And, and, and don't you want to give us a treat? And they'd been really badly behaved through the year, but Dave was a kind-hearted guy. And he said, okay, I'll, get, I'll, I'll give you the treat. So he goes to the corner store, buys them all, you know, popping chips or whatever, and they're all like, yeah, Dave, you're the best. That's great. And he says, well, great, guys. I guess I won't see any. Uh, maybe a couple of you guys will be on tomorrow, but most of you won't be on tomorrow, especially the high school students. So see you guys. Have a great summer. Next morning, he does his bus route, and they all get on. <laughs> they lied to him. But he'd been holding the treat over their head, right? If you don't behave, you won't get the treat at the end of the year. Now he had no leverage and he had a kid, they treated him horribly. So that summer, Dave said, hey, you want to drive a school bus? <laughs> and I said, sure, how hard could it be? That's another story. <laughs> so what if God doesn't have leverage over us? What if, well, you mean God says I'm righteous now, and, I, and I'm going to heaven, and well, then why won't I just treat God horribly like those kids on the bus treated the bus driver? Because it seems to me, so, okay, I'm just saying the argument. And, and believe me, I'm not making fun of this argument because I struggle with it myself. I have to stand firm because I slip back into legalism. If we learned in Galatians that even Peter, and not the old fearful Peter, but the new bold and improved new man in Christ Peter, slipped back into it. And these, all these churches full of good Christians in Galatia were getting sucked back into legalism. That's why that one verse says, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. This stuff spreads. Because in our hearts, there still is that draw back to earning. Back to earning. Because we do it everywhere else. I earn your love. I earn my wage. I earn, I earn, I earn, I earn. The whole world tells me I need to perform to earn and so it's so easy for us to slip back into this with God in the one area where you cannot earn. In the one area where you cannot earn, we still slip back into it. And so you've got to be careful. You don't want a little leaven. You don't want a little bit of this. You don't want this in a church. You can sweep through a church. You can sweep through any place. Hey, you're, if you're a teacher at a Christian school, it can sweep through your school. Where it's all about Perform, perform, perform to prove you're a good enough Christian. Instead of what the gospel teaches. That you can't perform good enough. You need a savior. When you read, the, I, I, you run into people who say, I'm just going to follow the golden rule. That's, that's going to be my way of, of going about things. Have you tried it? Have you tried the golden rule? Have you tried to love a person as much as you love yourself? Boy, I've tried. Guess what? I'm not very good at it. You know what it shows me? I need someone else. I need someone else. I need a savior. If you try to obey the law, if you were, these, these guys were being tempted to be pulled back into something that was going to be an absolute dismal slavery for them, it's not going to work. So imagine, oh, okay, let me just jump forward. I want you to imagine two guys, two girls. Let's do two girls because I'll do two guys after this. Two, two girls. 
Two women, teenagers, whatever, I don't know. Let's say they're twins. Yeah, let's make them twins. Then, then it'll be easy for my illustration. Okay, you got two, and tomorrow morning, they get up to have a devotional time. They're going to read the Bible and pray. Let's say they do it for the exact amount of time, 20 minutes total, let's say. One reads and prays, one And let's say we're watching this on, uh, like, uh, uh, screens, like a reality show. And they read the same scripture passages, and they send, spend the same amount of time in prayer. And you say, wow, they're twins, and they're doing the exact same thing. It seems like there's no difference. And then what if I'm, like, the game show host, and I come out and I say, one of these ladies, you don't know, is striving to be justified by obeying God. And the other one of these ladies is trusting in what Jesus has done and then responding to God with the exact same action. Wouldn't that be crazy? Actually, it's not so crazy because that could be you or me on any given morning. One morning I can go this way and lean into perform, 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 and maybe I can prove to God I'm good enough. And the other morning I can go this way, where I'm like, look at what Jesus has done for me. Look at how he's accepted me. Look at this love that he is, is beaming at me 24-7 and he will never let me go and operate out of that. And Paul is saying, stand firm. You'll be drawn to this. You'll be pulled toward this. There'll be people who pressure you towards this to try to prove that you're good enough for God, but you're not, you're not, you're not. You can't be, you can't earn. So stand firm. Don't become a slave to this way of thinking. It's not freedom. You'll never be confident of the love of God for you if you go here. But you know what? Lean into what Jesus has done. Don't go trying. Start trusting. And don't trust in your own efforts, but your trust in God's efforts. So for me, any given morning, I can lean this way or I can lean that, and so I need to stand firm. I need to discern when I've, I'm, I'm, I'm not trusting in Jesus. I'm not looking to Jesus. I'm not focused on who he is, but I'm focused on who I am. Boy, I really get more discouraged when I'm focused on who I am. I get really encouraged when I focus on who he is. Confidence grows when I focus on who he is. Uh, my prayers change when I focus on who he is. There's a lot more gratitude in my life when I focus on who he is. There's a lot less fear when I focus on who he is. In fact, some people maybe grew up in the church and they learned all these sort of good habits, but there still was a sense of striving and there, was a, and there was a motivation of fear and not being right with God. And you know what I think is a really neat thing that can happen? Is over the years as you hear the gospel, as you focus in on what Jesus has done for you and, and it sinks deeper and deeper, that you actually could sort of slowly but surely morph from one to the other. Not trying, but noticing more and more trusting in your life. Like the song says, last week I referenced it, "'Tis so sweet." to trust in Jesus. Oh, for grace to trust him more. Let me give you another analogy. We'll use men this time. Two men, okay, both employees of the same company. Small company, but a really prosperous company. It's doing well. It'll probably do even better in the future. And they both come to the, the boss, and they have the same question. First guy comes. He says, what is my motivation for working hard here? He's asking the boss. What's my motive? Have you ever tried this with your boss? 
what's my motivation for working here? And the boss says, work or you will be fired. Okay, got it. Now let's say a couple hours later, the second employee comes in. He doesn't know about the other employee, but he asks the same question. What's my motivation for working here, for working hard here? And this time the boss says something totally different. He says, you're my son. And someday all this will be yours. And in fact, I want, to, I want you to work hard now because we're building something together. But I don't just want you to work. I don't want you just to come in and tick off a whole bunch of to-dos in the morning. But you're going to have to do that too. But I want you to dream. I want you to imagine. I want you to build something for the future. Because you're my son, you're my heir. This is all yours. You're my representative. Everywhere you go, you represent the work that we do. See, some people can't imagine that if God makes me righteous now, that I'll have any motivation to serve him. But you have to move into a new phase, and that's living in the identity of who you are in Christ. You're a son, you're a daughter, you're an heir. You're his representative in the world. Do you say these things to yourself? You're righteous in his sight. You've been given the message of reconciliation about Jesus to carry to the rest of the world. You, you're the future of the family business. And I think there's more power in that. I think there's more power in identity than there is in guilt. I see this every year at the gym. I'm one of those people who, even though I don't go to the gym, I donate to a local gym. <laughs> every January. I think it's a good thing. You should all donate to a local gym. But some people actually, after they donate to the local gym, continue to attend. Isn't that amazing? Let me tell you, I think one of the big factors in whether you attend at the local gym and participate in its activities and actually reap its benefits is identity. How do you see yourself? Okay, a workout's, a workout's coming. Do you say, man, I'm getting soft, or my legs are skinny, or I... I I'm such a failure, I'm no good at this, and I ate too much last night, I gotta go to the gym. That motivation gets you to the third week of January. <laughs> now put yourself in another person's shoes and they say, I'm an athlete. Now, people say this to themselves all the time when it's not true, but it's okay, it still works. I'm an athlete. You know what I used to say? There was a while where I was running longer and longer distances, and I was trying to, and you know what I started saying to myself, and it totally worked. I, I've heard shared this with before. I would say to myself, I'd be lying in bed, and I'm going, I have to get up this morning and do my run. And I said to myself, Steve, you are a piece of steel. <laughs> it worked. 
It worked. A person who's failing and failing and can never measure up never gets out of bed after the third week of January. But a piece of steel, he just goes where he belongs. So when people say, I, I don't see how, if, if I didn't have the fear of God's punishment, if I didn't have his, the stick of, his, of, of his, him not, of his disapproval, if I didn't have that, I don't know if I'd serve God. Well, it means that you've only experienced the motivation of fear. You've never experienced the motivation of love and identity. And God wants to move you from one to the other. He wants to move you from one to the other. I love, I love uh, Ephesians 2.8. Let me read it to you. Ephesians 2.8 is amazing. It actually shows you a, the transition. It actually helps you understand your work, okay, how you work for God. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, Ephesians 2.8. For as gr- by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God and not by works so that no one can boast, for we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works. There's three words in there that say work. First, it's not by our works that we're saved. We can't earn a right standing with God. No matter how many good things you do, the deficit will always be against you. So that's clear. So you say, oh, well, it's just a passive thing. No way, it is not passive. Read the rest. It's not by works so no one can boast, so that's clear. But we are God's handiwork. We're God's work. We're God's creation. He put his fingerprints all over us. He made us for specific purposes. And what does that include? We are created in Christ Jesus to do good works. You're a son or a daughter. You're an heir. You're a representative of the family business. You were made for this. You are made to represent Christ to to a thirsty and hungry world. That's who you are. And so that's what you were created for. Created in Christ Jesus to do good works. That's why a person like Paul would say, I work harder than almost anybody I know. Because the grace of God has not been wasted on me. I'm living out of my identity. I'm living out of the love of God. I'm living in the confidence of what God has done. And this is the passage. It's it's from slavery to freedom. Sin is slavery. And being under the law is slavery. And trying to earn your way with God is slavery. And freedom is when you understand the love of God for you. And freedom is when you trust in what Jesus has done for you. This week, I got an email. I was so blessed, man. I was so blessed by this email. And I'm not reading the whole thing. And I'm keeping it anonymous. And I did get permission, just to let you know. But I'm going to read you a portion of this email. And as I read it, I thought, what an amazing description of what we are talking about. What an amazing description. And you know what? I bet some of you will relate to this. So this is someone describing themselves, and they've given a lot more, but they're describing themselves and their journey. It says, and this was just after last week's message. So basically started with, you know, thanks for your message this morning, and then there's a lot more. But then it goes like this. 
I know the word, like the Bible. I understand the word. I, I love God and his word and believe that Christ died for me. I, but then goes on to say, but I, I, I don't or I, I didn't expect too much for myself. Talking about, you know, bringing people to church and, and hoping that they would really receive. But then, I, I, I didn't expect too much for myself. I've been trying to keep control of my life. All of my life. So for all my life, I've been trying to keep control of my life. And when I fail with my relationship with God, it's my fault. I'm not good enough. I will never be good enough. Some days I try harder than others. Other days I give up. It's impossible. I can't do it on my own. I, I cannot do this on my own. I've heard the enemy tell me this thousands of times. Let me read that again. I've heard the enemy tell me this thousands of times. The accuser, Revelation tells us, he stands day and night to accuse us before God. In Revelation it tells us that. I've heard the enemy tell me thousands of times, you can't do this. You can't do this. You can't do this. He says, I've heard the enemy tell me this thousands of times, and then I believed it. I walked, away year, I walked away years ago from God as one cannot follow all of these laws trying to be good enough. Thankfully, God's grace has saved me and sustains me every single day. I came back to the Lord a few years ago. I have Ephesians 2.8, which we already read, to remind me and also to tell others how God's grace has saved me. All this to say, coming to Hillcrest has challenged me in my way of thinking. Every week, I listen intently and find myself walking away with something new. And today, something clicked in a way in which it hadn't for years. Earlier during the service today, a small voice simply told me, I'm exactly where I need to be right now. Then at the end of your service, something clicked, something else clicked. I found myself standing there knowing something's changed. Something's changed, going from knowledge to faith. I've had both, but not the type of faith that's been described in the last few weeks during the services. This is a different type of faith. One where I'm now understanding the meaning of Jesus plus nothing. I'm beginning to understand why I'm here at this church now. As I open myself up more, I find myself being challenged and learning more than I ever have before. I'm exactly where I need to be. Thank you for sharing what God's put on your heart as it's instrumental in God's working and shaping mine. This is a great... Anyone relate to that? Anyone relate to that? This is a great description of the process of freedom. This is a great description of the process of freedom. If you go back to verse 5, can you go back to verse 5 in our main text? I want to show you something. It says, For through the Spirit we eagerly await by faith the righteousness for which we hope. That line, through the Spirit. How does, as, as the email writer said, how does something go from a matter of the head to a matter of faith? A matter of the head to a matter of the heart. A matter of, I know this so I could put it on a on a piece of paper, on a test, but now I know it as a conviction deep inside of me and it's starting to change my behavior. How does that happen? How does that journey, that whatever it is, eight-inch journey, how does it happen? It happens through the Spirit. It happens by the Spirit of God. It is a work of God. This is a matter of God working in your life. 
Now, I'm, I'm laboring you to show you that you can live a life of assurance of your salvation. You can be confident in your relationship with God. You can live as your, with your identity firmly fixed in him. You can be his ambassador to the world. I, I'm laboring to do that, but you know what? I can only go so far. The rest is the work of the Spirit. The rest is the work of the Spirit. I can show you every verse in the Bible that, it sh that should make you say, hey, I am righteous. I am God's. I do belong to him. And motivate you to live like that. But something has to happen inside of you by the Spirit of God for that to go from here to here. So last week, the one who wrote this email was standing in church and something clicked. Something clicked. And I believe that God wants that for each one of us. He wants that for each one of us. I want to tell you, there's two things at work. There's one, I'm going to stand firm, right? I don't want to be drawn into making a list of rules and trying to perform and trying to prove myself and failing and then going on a big hiatus from God for years or months or whatever it's going to be until I feel like I've atoned for my own sin, which you could never do, only Jesus can. So it's one thing to stand firm and, and, and to believe the right things and, and to focus on Jesus and, and every day. Well, I'm careful about saying every day because... Legalists will jump on that, and then they'll get discouraged. So let me say, and regularly. <laughs> I really want to help you. I really do. And regularly, affirming the love of God for you, the position that you have in Christ, who you are in him. But the other side of the coin is not just that we stand firm. It's that we need to be open to the Spirit of God. So if you've struggled through your life, if you've struggled through your life about having an assurance of salvation. I struggled when I was a child. I struggled with a lot of things when I was a child. Age six to eight. Can you believe this? Age six to eight, I just never really was confident that I belonged to God. And it ended at eight. So God can do this work in a child. He can do this work in a teenager. He can do this work in a young adult. He can do this work when you're 70, 80, 90. He can do this work. Of assurance of your salvation. Knowing, 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 knowing that I'm God's. And then living like your gods. So I want to, let's stand together. I'm going to tell you one more story real quick. Some of you have heard this before, but my best friend, my best friend's father, interrogated me on this. Interrogated me. Every time I go visit my best friend's house, he'd say, because he, 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 he was convinced that if, if you sin now, and you die right after, and you didn't confess your sin, that you would not go to heaven. He's convinced of that. So he would, I'd, I'd walk into the house, and I'd say, hey, mister, I won't say his last name, hey, how you doing? And I'm, we're just going to hang out and stuff like this. Just wait, I have a question for you. Oh, no. So if you lie, and then you die, do you go to heaven? I said, yeah, I do believe that, that I would go to heaven. Really? What if you lie and steal and then die? <laughs> yes, yes. What if you lie, steal, commit adultery? I'm like, commit adultery? Like I was 15 or whatever. I couldn't even imagine that. 
What is, what is that? Anyhow, I was like, no, no, I, I still think I go to him. And then he's, like, he's really rattling off the Ten Commandments, right? Lie, steal, commit adultery, and murder someone, and then you die. Are you going to heaven? It was hard back then. Because here I had a legalist in my life who was pressuring me and making, you know, and he was, he was intense, and I sort of felt like, huh. But through that interrogation, I learned a little bit of standing firm, of speaking the gospel in response, and speaking it over my own life. What is my confidence over the sin when I have a bad day this week? When you have a bad day this week, when you see failure after failure, when you see things bubbling out of yourself that aren't holy or good, what is your hope? It cannot be trusting in your work. It can only be trusting in Jesus' work. And that's the way that God meant it to be. And it isn't, like my interrogator would say, that you now need to confess your sin before you die or you are not, or you're cut off from God. You still confess your sin, but you don't do it as a person who's an alien from God. You do it as a child of God, right? If I say something really, this is the last thing I'll say. I know you're standing. So if I say something really insensitive to my wife, on the hottest day of summer, it doesn't matter. It still gets chilly in the house. <laughs> and so I need to make it right. But how do I make it right? Well, I apologize. I tell her, I'm sorry. But I don't do it as a person who isn't married anymore. I do it as her husband. Am I wrong? I'm wrong. But we're still family. So when you get to that moment this week, here's the thing. The enemy is going to come at you with a ton of bricks this week when you fail. Because you will fail. You fail every week, don't you? I do. Every day, actually. Um, maybe you're better. When you fail, the enemy's going to come at you with a ton of bricks. He doesn't want you to have any confidence in this area. He's going to come at you with a ton of bricks, ton of accusation. What kind of Christian are you? How could God ever love you? He's going to lie and lie and lie and, ac and accuse you. He's going to come at you. He's going to come at you. And here's what, if you've had a pattern of this in your past, you'll be tempted to follow the same pattern. You'll say, man, I did fail. What kind of Christian am I? Now I need to avoid God for a long period to atone for my sin, making yourself the Savior, dislodging Jesus from his place. Instead, run to him immediately. When I fail... You know, I haven't told you a secret. Sometimes I, fail, sometimes I fail on a Sunday morning. I do a sermon. I'm going, boy, that was a lame sermon. You know what I do? It's about this step where I say it. I don't say it out loud, but I just say, Lord, I receive your grace. I don't want five days of avoiding God. I don't want a month where I won't stand in his presence. I don't want years to go by without being who I was made to be, created to be. I want to deal with it right now. So I confess and repent as a member of his family, as a son or as a daughter. Run to him right away. His grace is bountiful. It's bigger than your sin. It's greater than your sin. 
and stop and, and, and then make that transition. You'll for a moment be focusing on yourself and your sin, but quickly move past that and focus on him. Your sin is not as great as his ability to forgive. So don't focus, don't make it that I'm a great sinner. Make it that he's a great forgiver. And begin to praise. Move into gratitude. And you'll break the enemy's attack against you. You'll break his accusation. And his road trip that he had for you, whether he meant for it to be weeks or days or months or whatever he meant it to be, ended in a second. Ended in a second. Return to the one who loves you. Receive his grace. And then move forward as a son or daughter. Let me pray for you. Lord, I thank you that you have nailed our sins to the cross. And not just most of them, all of them, all of them. The ones in the past, the ones in the present, and the ones yet to come in our lives. You've nailed them all to the cross. You've canceled the record against us. And you've given us a new record. You've given us the record that Jesus had. Perfect. Perfect and sinless. Perfect obedience. You see us just as if we never sinned and just as if we've always obeyed because of Jesus. And now our focus, Lord, take it off of us. Health, I pray you'd give us a generous dose of self-forgetfulness. That we'd stop looking at ourselves. We are not the most important character in the story that we are living. But you are. You are the one we look to. We fix our eyes on you, Jesus. You're the author of our faith, so that means you started it, and you're the perfecter. You are going to take us on the trip of transformation that you got ahead for us, and we're going to trust you every moment of the way because you are the one, the only one we can trust. You're the only one we can look to. But we look to you in gratitude. We look to you in gratitude for what you've done. We look to you in gratitude for what you've done. Thank you that you just blew open the doors. You, whatever uh, obstacles were in the way, whatever things were in the way, you made it access to the Father through your work on the cross, through your death, through your resurrection, through taking our sin and that exchange that gives us, our, gives us your righteousness. We just thank you for all of that. And Lord, I pray that each one in the room, in the sound of my voice, would live as a son or a daughter as an heir of all that you have for us in, in, in you. And that fear would be put aside. And now we would express our faith through love. Love for you and love for others. Yeah. Lord, form our identity. Shape us and mold us. You're the potter, we're the clay. We ask that in your name. Amen.